We're going to open up God's Word. All right. Are we ready to go? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, please help us with this word today. Particularly feel your need, might feel my need for your help today, Lord, in this one. And I pray that you'd really um, make this live in our hearts and guide and lead us by your spirit through this one, Lord. We'd really come to a place of Immense satisfaction in you. Amen. 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 Now we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, as most of you know by now, unless you're a guest, we're working through Matthews 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We spent weeks looking at what it means to be a, a believer, looked at what's known as the Beatitudes, describing true conversion, genuine conversion, and all of that involves being poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you've not been here for any of those, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. They give you a foundation for the whole sermon. If you just launch straight into the ethical uh, commands of living and think that that's really what it's all about, you've missed the whole idea. That's where people go wrong with the Sermon on the Mount. They hear Jesus say things like, turn the other cheek and say, oh, it's lovely, great, this is how we all should live, isn't it? Yes, but we don't. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples speaking to those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, speaking to those who know and love Him. And all of the ethical teaching here is for believers. And so you say, well, well what, 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 is, what does God say to those who don't believe then? He says, believe. Okay? So believe in Christ. Come, come to Him. We'll look at that as we go through today. And then out of that place of being made brand new in Christ, you can begin to deal with these commands and by the power of the Spirit work them out in your life. So if you're here today and you are not a believer, all I would ask is for you to be thinking through as we go through, okay, this is what it, this is what it means like. If I become a Christian, this is the kind of things that God is going to be saying to me and God is w- going to be wanting me to live. Um, if you are a believer, then uh, th- th- this is, as we looked at in the last few weeks, Jesus saying, your righteousness not in terms of your judicial standing before God, but in terms of the way you live, must surpass by far that of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day, who were primarily externalists. They, they did and didn't do certain things externally, but their heart was all wrong. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness is going to have to go way beyond that in terms of actually uh, the motivation out of which you live. And... Um, we have a lot to get through today because we're looking at um, lust primarily, the anger last week. Um, in this passage, we're going to look at sexual sin. We're going to look at hell. We're, we're going to look at holiness. Um, lots of pitfalls potentially in those areas. So um, uh, buckle up. And um, Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. You've heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There we go. That's where we're going today. Um, a couple of points by way of introduction. <coughs> is, it, is this subject the big one? Or is it just that we make it the big one? We seem to, Christians seem to always be talking about kind of sex and sexual sin. Is it that we make it the big one by the virtue of the fact that we always talk about it? Or is there something inherently big, if you like, about it? I think a bit of both. Um, my reasons for saying there is something inherently big about it are three. The first reason is this, is that our culture is very, very sex-soaked. Um, you probably would have heard a few months back of uh, the, uh, the um, retail company Primark had to recall uh, a line of clothing for preteens because of the amount of complaints by parents where they brought out a line of clothing for children that was uh, deliberately provocative and deliberately sexual. And the amount of, thankfully, the amount of protest by parents meant they had to recall with an apology. But we're living in a kind of a, a culture where um, you're kind of relieved but also surprised at the level of protest um, because many, many things would just be um, gotten away with and no one would uh, think of a big fuss about it. I remember walking past with the kids once at the opening of a La Senza in Oxford Street and, you know, you're just kind of walking along the street and your eyes glancing through. And I thought, did that mannequin just move? And, of course, when they open the center, they get a live model in the window um, uh, displaying the staff. So I had to go and speak to the manager, who, obviously, again, it's just, you could just feel the surprise that someone would suggest that it's unhelpful. And um, so our culture is extremely um, sex-soaked, and the danger is, obviously, that it, we just become completely desensitized to it. So it is a big one on that front. Um, secondly, it's a big one in, in the sense that in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul highlights the uniqueness of sexual sin. Uh, in this one sense, yes, sin is sin, all sin is sin. But um, at the same time, the Bible does differentiate between sins. And Paul says that, um, that sexual sin as a Christian is a sin against the body. And there, what he's, he's not saying that because your physical body is involved. He's saying it's a sin against the body of Christ in that sense that as a believer, you are a member of the body of Christ. He's saying if you are joined with a prostitute, which was going on in Corinth, he's saying because Christ is in you and you are part of his body, you are taking Christ with you into that act and you are joining Jesus with a prostitute. So, so it's obviously a, a, a horrendous thing to be doing. So in that sense, there's something unique. When you are a member of the body of Christ, if you get into sexual sin, you take the church and you take the Lord Jesus in, into that uh, in a way that is uh, um, horrific. It's not like if you do other sins, you don't bring Jesus into it. But the thought of bringing the Lord Jesus into union with a prostitute is obviously should be enough if you're a believer to stop you in your tracks. Uh, thirdly, I would say that sex offers three things that are uh, incredibly powerful and incredibly desirable. Um, intimacy, ecstasy, and beauty. Um, there's nothing more intimate in human existence than sexual intercourse. And, and sex, obviously, is an offer of intimacy, being intimate with someone. It, it, it hits all our buttons for intimacy, and so in that sense, if we are, as believers, not enjoying a close 
an intimate walk with the Lord, then obviously it's very easy to be pulled away into that. Ecstasy in terms of orgasm, from an earthly perspective, the only thing that can match is a heroin shot. Um, so they would say the only thing on a par um, with sexual orgasm is, 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 is a shot of heroin in terms of level of ecstasy um, and also beauty. We love beauty. We are made by the beautiful one. We are made for beauty. Um, we, are, we are made to gaze on his beauty. Our soul longs for the beauty of the Lord, whether we know it or not. And um, the only, I guess, the only possible uh, way that uh, we may possibly be drawn away from the beauty of the Lord uh, would be to be drawn away by someone made in his image. So uh, in that sense, there is, a, there is a, a vulnerability there in regards to beauty. It's very tempting for people that in Romans 1 are described as those who, though we acknowledge God, kind of suppress the reality of God and instead of worshipping him, worship and serve the created things. And, um, you know, if someone created is very, very beautiful, whether it's just physically or whether there's something all more holistic than that, you just find them incredibly beautiful, then it, it, it's actually not that hard to fall into a place where you are desiring and longing uh, for them more than you are for the Lord. So I think it's a big deal, and I think we need to really grapple with this. Um, second thing to say by way of um, introduction is that Jesus is clearly talking to men here. Okay? You haven't got to be a rocket scientist to work out here that although Jesus had women in his uh, uh, kind of a group of disciples here, the disciples he's speaking to throughout this sermon are clearly men um, because he's, he's speaking to them and doesn't address uh, women in this and in other passages throughout the sermon. So how am I going to address that today? Well, I'm going I'm to um, look at uh, women in two ways. Firstly, uh, women as objects of lust, which is obviously tied in very much with this passage here. But then also, um, secondly, look at particular things that can tempt women to fall into lust because those things are akin to what can tempt men, but not identical. So we're gonna look, we're gonna, we've got a lot to get through, maybe a bit longer than normal, um, but I trust that God will help us, and I'll try and speak quickly. Okay, let's, um, let's, get, let's start on verse 27. Um, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy 5, verse 18. It's commandment number 7 out of the Big Ten. Okay, um, now what is um, adultery and why does God hate it? Adultery is when wedlock is broken through sexual unfaithfulness. So it could be, for example, that someone is unmarried, but that person seduces someone who is married and ends up sleeping with a married person. As a result, the wedlock is broken. It could be that someone married uh, seduces someone who is unmarried and uh, ends up sleeping with them, and by virtue of that, that their wedlock is broken. It could be that there are two married couples and then um, one married couple, uh, one person from that marriage um, develops some kind of spark, some kind of interest in, in, a, in someone else's husband or wife and rather than kind of pouring cold water on that thing straight away, it's, instead it's protected and it's nurtured and it's developed and uh, they end up in bed together and two marriages are broken down. Now, that is what adultery is. Uh, uh, it, so what it, why does God hate it so much? Well, the main problem with adultery is that it, it shows a complete disregard and lack of respect for covenant. And, that's, and thus a lack of respect and regard for the God of covenant. You see, we, 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 so we don't think like this. So you think, what, what, what's that about? What is a covenant? A covenant is agreement, a solemn agreement between two parties based on promises. And it is a huge deal with God. 
Some people say, oh, no, I'm not getting married, it's just a piece of paper. If someone says that, then their understanding of marriage is contractual. No, you sign the paper, just, it's the legal thing, it's, for the, it's, just for the, it's just a legal thing, it's for the country. It's not, the big deal is the promise. The big deal is when you make those promises to that person before God and publicly before others, that there a covenant is being made and that is what joins us. God joins you together through those promises and through that covenant. The way God deals with us is by covenant. He, he doesn't deal, deal with us casually. He makes solemn and binding promises like, I've given my only son so that if you trust him, you will have eternal life and you will not perish. They're promises. God comes in. And then as we come in and pledge ourselves to Christ, that relationship is established. We know him. He knows us. It's covenant. He guards that. He'll never break covenant. He is utterly faithful. And so when we break covenant, it breaks his heart. When we break covenant, that's why the Bible, God says things like, I hate divorce. He hates it. Not this, a simple subject. We're doing that one next week. It is not simple, but nevertheless, God hates it. Why? Because God loves covenant, and God loves faithfulness, and God is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. It's how God operates. He's not casual with us. He says, no, I pledge myself to you forever. Adultery also destroys families, and families are the bedrock of communities, so adultery destroys communities. This is very, very serious stuff. So that's what it was said, and that's why God said it. Let's get on to the heart of the thing, verse 28. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, these Pharisees and Sadducees were reading the old commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, and they were isolating it and saying, okay, well, we haven't done that. But what Jesus does is he really brings them to commandment number 10. And commandment number 10 is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So it's not enough to just say, well, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm fine. Actually, Jesus and the Lord say, actually, don't even cover your neighbor's wife. To cover means to delight in, and it goes on to speak about wishing for. So it's to delight in someone else's spouse, to find real delight in them, and then to go and wish in, well, I'd be good. Actually, I want them. I'm not, I'm not happy with my spouse. Or if you're single, well, do you know what? I, I, I resent the fact that he got to her first. I want her, and I'm going to, whether subtly or obviously, pursue. That is, there's something happens in the heart there. You see, Jesus gets to the heart of the thing. He gets outside just the mere external action, and he says, what's going on in the heart there? You see, we, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here is getting to the heart of the problem, which is sin. Uh, sin is the deepest problem with humanity, and we need to understand, have a proper grasp of what the Bible means when it talks about sin. I'm going to read to you from Lloyd-Jones where he talks about sin. He says this about the doctrine of sin. He says, I know, of course, that the doctrine of sin is not popular today. People dislike the whole idea and try and explain it away psychologically in terms of development and temperament. Man is evolved out of the animal, they say, and he's just sloughing off very slowly these relics and remnants of his animal past and his animal nature. Thus, the whole doctrine of sin is entirely denied and avoided, but Obviously, if that is our view and position, the Scriptures must be quite meaningless to us. Because everywhere in the New Testament, as in the Old Testament also, this is something which is central. That is why we must consider it. For there's nothing at the present time which is more urgently necessary than that we grasp 
the biblical doctrine with respect to sin. I assert that most of our failures and troubles in the church, as well as in the world, are due to the fact we have not really understood this doctrine. We have all been influenced by the idealism that has been controlling thought for the past hundred years. This idea that man was evolving towards perfection and that education and culture were going to put us right. Thus, we have never taken seriously this tremendous teaching which is found from beginning to end in the Bible and most of our troubles arise from this source. He goes on to say, sins are nothing but the symptoms of a disease called sin. I'll say that again. Sins are nothing but a disease of the, uh, symptoms of a disease called sin and it is not the symptoms that matter but the disease for it's a disease that kills and not the symptoms. You're going to have someone lying in bed, they're in trouble, they've got aches and pains all over. That's not what's killing them, it's the disease that's killing them. You can have someone else lying in the bed with no pain at all, but there's something deadly at work in their body and it's going to kill them. Because it's not the symptoms that kill, it's a disease that kills. And sins, the wrong things we do, are symptoms of this indwelling thing called sin. I'll tell you about the power of sin. It is the most deep problem in inside of a person it grips and infiltrates every area and it pollutes God's good creation sex sex drive sexual desire and longing are good they are not neutral God created sex as part of his original creation and he said it's very good you've got to get your mind straight on that that is the heart and that is the word of God Sex, sexual desire, sexual expression is a good thing. But sin pollutes it and contorts it so that it, become, it remains as powerful as ever but expresses it all, in all kinds of different ways that are abhorrent to God's heart and that ways that he hates. Understand the subtlety of sin. Sin is happy to operate quietly and, it, and, and use different labels. Sin never says, ah, oh, my name's Sin. Sin will use different labels, and particularly in regards to sexual sin, it will use labels like acceptance, tolerance, diversity, non-judgmentalism, open, and all these different things. They just mask the, 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 the reality of what is going on, which is sexual sin. Um, and you get to feel like, oh, you're the, you're the bad guy. Oh, no, I'm doing judgmental. Oh, no, I'm not into diversity or whatever. When the whole time it's just like God's saying, no, this, this is sex. It's beautiful. I've made it for marriage. Um, outside of that, I prohibit it. That's, that's the deal. And we won't go into that in big detail because I'm not preaching that today. But we can, we can do it and it makes perfect sense. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Um, but outside of that, God says, not, really not good at all. And um, judgment will come on that stuff. So, um, but in, our, in, our, in the world, in the age that we live in, it comes in all kinds of different guises. So we don't see it as such. We think, oh, well, surely, you know, we've all got choice and we're all open to this, open to that. Understand the deceitfulness of sin. Sinners deceive themselves and don't understand themselves. Don't we? <laughs> Don't people deceive themselves and then don't even understand themselves? Um, here's what we do. Um, we, just, we justify ourselves. We create arguments and frameworks in order to cover our backs and make us feel better about our sin. Here's what we do. We complicate what is simple in order to eradicate what is true, in order to justify what is pleasurable but wrong. Yeah? We complicate what is simple in order to eradicate what is true, in order to justify what is pleasurable but wrong. And then we lose ourselves in the labyrinthian arguments that we have created and become confused, bogged down, and life in the spirit is thwarted. That is what happens in the sinful mind. It's very subtle and it's very deceiving. 
Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. It's very simple. There it is. But here's the question. What is lust? And how do you differentiate between lust and a simple appreciation of beauty? In fact, a worshipful appreciation of God's creation. Surely that's a good thing. How do we... It's tricky, isn't it? Let's illustrate out of sex for a moment. Let's look at a poster of the Maldives. Okay? Imagine you're going on holiday to the poster of the Maldives and you say, this is where I'm going. I can respond in two ways. The first way I can go, that is beautiful. You're going there. That is... Look at that place. I can't wait to see the photos when you get back. I'm even slightly excited, even though I'm not going, by the fact that you're going. You know, I'm going to be kind of... When you're away, I'm going to be... Oh, they're diving at the moment. I'm going to... I'm just, I'm thrilled for you. It looks beautiful. Okay? One response. Response number two, I can go, that's nice. Oh, I've never been to the Maldives. I'm going to Devon this year. <laughs> Why do they get to go? Why do they get? I want to go to the Maldives. I, I want to go. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm going to go to the Maldives. And I don't care if I have to work seven days a week for months. I'm going to get to that. Something different's happened there. Something very different happened. It's gone into coveting. I've lost my peace over this beautiful thing. And actually, something desires have become aroused in me, and I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. So, the difference between just appreciation and delight and lust, coveting, and desire. If, if, if you lose your peace in some way, if your spirit gets troubled or unsettled, if, the, if desires are aroused in, in you that lead to a lack of joy or a sense of frustration or a sense of, I need, I must have this thing, I must look again. I must, I'm, I've got to look again. I've got to, I've, I've got to go there again. I've got to do that. Transfer that to the, to the sexual, to the lustful here. Um, I see a woman in the street and then I want to take another look. But, but why? Why do, I want to take, why do I want to take another look? Oh, well, you know, I want to appreciate God's handiwork. <laughs> Sounds real spiritual. Is it that? Or, or do I want to feed something in me? Is she really wearing that? I love the way she's standing. Just got to look again. You need to know yourself if you're going to walk with God. And believe me, he gets right to the heart of the matter. He gets right to the heart of the thing. You see, the Spirit knows. The Spirit searches. And if we stop the self-defense, it all becomes clear. So often we don't hear his voice because we're doing that. And we're building up walls of defense and justification rather than saying, you know what, Lord, what went on there was that. Jesus looks at the act of adultery and he says it doesn't start there. It doesn't start in the bed. It starts there. It starts in the heart. And particularly for men, it gets into the heart through the eyes. Why? What is it with men and the eyes? Well, Proverbs 27 verse 20 tells us the eyes of a man are never satisfied. There it is. There it is. The eyes of a man, men, they are never satisfied. That is it. That is God's word and it's true. One more look is a nonsense. It's a nonsense. One more look and then it will be, no, it won't be. Why? Because the eyes of a man are never 
satisfied. You will never see enough, ever. Jesus is nailing us guys here. He's saying, and I'm going to hold you personally responsible for what you do with your eyes. You see, because at times the first look is unintentional, isn't it? You, you, totally innocent. You turn the telly on, boom, it's there. You turn the corner, ah! It's into unintentional. So in that sense, he understands. It's a totally different thing. But then what do we do? Do we linger? Do we go back for another look? We're flicking through the magazine and we notice, oh, she's in there. What do we do then? Do we decide that's that magazine and we're done? I'm not going to. Or do we? Well, I flipped through again because uh, there was a really great uh, golfing uh, advert in there. And I wonder where it, what, what page it was on. <laughs> you know really what you're doing. And you guys are thinking, seriously? Yeah. That's what we're like. Or channel flicking. You know what you're really looking for. Well, the pop-up comes up on the computer. It's not your fault. It popped up. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Close the thing down, though. Close it down. There it is. Otherwise, you become an adulterer. And your, your wife may never know it. Or your wife-to-be may never know it. In fact, no one ever knows it. Because you're respectable and you never actually do the thing. But you are doing it. You are doing it. Speak to the girls for a few minutes on this regard. Do you remember the slut march the other month? Remember that? You don't know what slut march is? Okay, sorry. Okay. It started in Canada a few years ago. Basically, what happened was in, this, in the scene in Canada, um, there's been lots of rumblings politically. You would have picked it up with Kenneth Clark here a few months ago. There's lots of rumblings around this whole idea of is a woman somehow to blame in any shape or form for being raped? by the way that she looks or the way that, she gets, the way that she's dressed. You, I mean, you must have remembered the storm in the news a few months ago. Yeah, it was everywhere. Well, it, okay. So basically, there's this been thing going around where Kenneth Clark, some were saying, it's, it was kind of tricky, did he, didn't he? But he seemed to intimate in some way that you know, some rapes are more serious than others. And what was he saying? Was he saying that in some ways that um, certain women, to some degree, maybe deserved that because of the way they were getting dressed? And, and, and there was this whole thing going around. And understandably, women being outraged at this suggestion because if someone rapes someone, it's the perpetrator's fault in the story, right? Okay. But there was an understandable outrage at this idea. But someone thought of the idea of, well, let's demonstrate that we're not going to yield to this in any way. Let's show our right to dress how we want to dress and do what we want to do as free women. And so they organise a slut march. It's when the women dress up as, I guess, sluts and um, uh, as provocatively as possible and they marched through the they marched through the streets. So it was a massive one in London a few about two months ago, and um, and the whole idea is it's it's kind of a, the, the the deal is um, is it's saying it's our right to be able um, to do this. Um, now, why should the, the church disassociate with that? I just want you think, well, it's obvious why, but I want to say why because I think actually what what we what we what we want to associate with is rapist, his fault, yeah. Totally want to associate with that. Okay? So we have sympathy for this kind of outrage that it suggested that it could be a woman's fault. But we want to disassociate with this response. Why? Because yes, you've got a right to dress how you want to dress. Uh, of course you have, yeah. But is it helpful? Is it helpful? The Bible says everything's lawful, but not everything's helpful. 
Is that helpful? No, it's not. It's not. And I want to just say this to you, ladies. Please help the guys. It's not your responsibility. If we end up doing this, it's not your responsibility. Jesus nails the guys. It's our responsibility, and we've got to live before God for that. Absolutely. But, ladies, please help. Yeah? Please be helpful. Um, and you, don't, you don't get it. Me and Davina have these really funny conversations at times that are sometimes funny, sometimes tense, because she doesn't get it. So there will be occasion I'll say to Daz, I'll say, Daz, uh, probably won't wear that. She says, what do you mean don't wear that? I say, I just don't think that, that's probably, that's not probably a great idea. Well, why? It's probably, good. may just cause, you know, she's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. She said, you said, I said, yeah, I'm serious. She said, this? I said, yeah. <laughs> and then just me, I know guys, you know. And she's like, cool. Because her heart is absolutely pure, absolutely right. But, I've, you know, there's just this thing where, She's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And it's just, it's like that. Um, so I'm just ask, just ask you to just consider us and to help us in that. Throughout the Bible, modesty is encouraged. It's not that we bring in rules and regulations. We just say, give it some thought. Am I saying, stop being pretty? No. Am I saying, be drab? No. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, um, over demonstrating your rights to wear whatever you like. Love us, love the guys, be helpful. That's what I'm saying. Let's use our freedom to serve each other as Jesus did. Amen? Um, so just give an illustration. Then we're going to flip it and look at helping women. Illustration, guy, young guy, uh, someone told me a story, young guy in Australia goes to this kind of catwalk kind of deal. So he's sat in the crowd at the catwalk and it's lingerie kind of catwalk situation. So you've got these very, obviously very, very attractive women uh, dressed in lingerie and they're walking down the catwalk and they're, making eyes at the guys because it's kind of part of the job it's kind of what the thing it was kind of what the thing was so you've got a guy in the crowd who's absolutely just taken aback and besotted by these women who everything as far as he's concerned everything about them is them saying oh, you know I want to I want I want to be intimate with you and 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 so he j- but, but but at the same time he recognizes he's got this conflict in his mind he's recognized that they have absolutely no interest in him at all none at all and he just, it gets to the point where he just freaks because the lethal, toxic cocktail of seductive intimacy and provocative beauty mixed with rejection, and I don't know you, just flipped him, uh, mixed in with his own idolatry in his own heart, and he just freaked. And, and in the end, the security had to take him away, and they found him dead. Uh, a few hours later, he just killed himself. Just the thing got in his spirit. The, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a demonic thing. And it's... It's everyone's fault, <laughs> okay? It's not just all those wicked women, wicked women, wicked men. It's everyone's fault. Everyone being unhelpful and unloving. And it just kills, kills people's souls. This stuff is really, really serious. But just, although, we're not, although Jesus isn't preaching on helping women, we've got to flip it here because I'm, obviously I'm speaking to a mixed congregation. What is it for women? I've done my research. <laughs> I remember one, I preached on this thing a few years ago and one of the women said, well, why don't you say what it was for us? I'm thinking, well, I don't know. So <laughs> I did some, I did some research and so... Or is it for women? Well, traditionally, typically, again, it's a generalization, but it seems like it's not the visual in the same way that it is a visual for the guys, although the visual is a part of it. It's a much more holistic deal. It's, it's atmosphere. It's kinda, it, it is the visual, but it's atmosphere. Can, every kind of sense gets involved. It's particular interest. 
from, from guys in a kind of a sustained interest kind of way, these things would be much more likely to cause uh, a woman to kind of wake up in that sense and be, and be kind of uh, drawn out uh, in that sense and be uh, stimulated. Uh, whereas a guy is just hardwired so visually. Um, that's part of the deal for the woman, but it's a much more holistic thing uh, than that. Um, and so we try and help our men help our women in two main ways. First, we say to the guys, please don't show sustained interest in a woman uh, in an individual kind of way unless you are seriously interested in her. Please don't do that. And don't do it with some kind of platonic ticket. Oh, well, we know we're just friends. Don't do it. Do not show sustained individual interest to a woman if you're not interested in her in that way. It will be unhelpful. It will be unhelpful and they will most likely think, oh, this is... Um, second thing, words particularly, words and promises. We discourage guys from going overboard with their words. It's a particular weakness for guys. So they're out on the second date, maybe they're having a coffee with a girl, thinking through, hey, maybe there's something developing here. Girl rocks up, she looks amazing. She's having a good everything day. <laughs> so the guy with his visual thing is going, ding, 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 ding. So he's drinking his latte going, hey, she's amazing, she looks incredible, yeah? And then what he does is he goes into overdrive mode and before, before the end of the coffee, he's promised her like marriage, eight kids. The, it's like, what have you done? You, have, you know, not that that's necessarily a great thing to promise. I'm not saying women want that. But just, he's, he's gone overboard. Do you know what I mean? It's like this, it's that, it's... Because he's just, he's just, he's buzzing, not on the caffeine, but he's on just, she looks amazing. And, and he just says all these things, and, and he doesn't he really even know the depth of what he's saying. And what he doesn't realize is he's drawing this woman's heart out. And it's, it's out of order. It's really out of order. And we say to our guys, don't do that. Don't, you protect the lady. You say things when you're ready to back them up. You say things when you're ready to actually come through with some stuff. You don't, don't, because it's very, very irresponsible. We encourage wisdom. We want to protect women from broken hearts and from love being awakened prematurely. Girls still have responsibility to guard their own hearts in it. But we always go a bit harder on the guys just because it's good for them. So, so what do we do? Let's get back to the text, verses uh, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body go into hell. Okay. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's definitely saying drastic action. Okay. He's definitely saying that. Some have done this literally. In fact, many over the centuries have done this literally. They've, they've chopped the hand and plucked the eye. I admire their earnestness. Um, I'm not convinced it's what Jesus meant because once you do that, you've still got your left eye. You pluck out your left eye. If, if I plucked out my eyes, I've got 38 years of images stored on my hard drive. How do I get rid of them? You understand what I'm saying? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, so I don't think it works. It takes something deeper than that. But the point remains, it's better to enter life and glory with significant battle scars than find yourself intact in hell. It is. It really is. I'm going to give you some testimony on this point. I'm, I'm nervous about doing this. 
And I, I can, you know, I don't want to be self-indulgent. I just thought, no, I just think it's probably appropriate to bring just to some con- a contemporary example. I'm going to give you the testimony on this stuff with three points. When I got saved, I was completely enslaved. Um, uh, before I got saved, completely enslaved to lust, chronic masturbation, and all of that. Totally enslaved. Um, by God's grace, at my moment of conversion, um, that, that hold of lust was broken, and I was no longer a slave in, in, in the same way. Um, but there was still, there was, there was, there was, it still took time. I'd say it took me three years to get to the point where I became convinced in my own heart that masturbation is wrong. It's a sin. It's a big discussion in the Christian world. Okay? Uh, it took me to three years where I came to a point where I was personally convinced that this is sin. And um, I was convinced by the fact that um, sex is created for two people, not three people, not one person. It's created for two people. That's what God created it for. Um, God has created ways, particularly for. Um, guys, obviously, orgasm is a very different deal for a guy and for a woman, a very different kind of thing in so many different ways. And God has provided in, in his providence a way for uh, guys to, for, for release, um, if, if that's what is needed physically. He's done a way of doing that. So God's made provision there in terms of through the night, you know, dreams, um, in, in sleep. Um, God has made sex for two people, and I think a big problem with us is that we're so isolationist, individualistic. We think about me, 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 and we even bring the sex thing into that and create kind of fantasy worlds and, and all that. And it's totally, totally out of line with reality, God's truth. It's such into a world of nasty, dark fantasy and captivity. It's a horrible thing. And so, um, and so, uh, um, and so, s- stopped when I became convinced and then lived three years from that point to being married in a very completely celibate way in that sense without doing anything like that. Point number one, it can be done. By the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, it can be done. And I'm saying that not just to put myself up on a pedestal, but because I, 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 I encounter a lot of defeatist mentality in Christians around this where they just think, do you know what, can it? Yeah, it can be done. God will give you the grace for it. Second thing I want to say it's that um, before I had a relationship with Davina, I had two relationships with two girls as, as, that were Christians, but there was a physical element to the relationship, which meant that I did in those relationships what guys do, which is when I didn't know what to say, I would just, well, let's have a kiss. And, and guys are lazy relationally, but hardwired physically. And so w- what we tend to drop into is, oh, I don't want to talk about now, uh, ah, you know, and it's just like you don't build a foundation of friendship in the relationship at all, and uh, you just default to that. Um, doesn't, doesn't make for a great start to marriage. You're building all the wrong kind of foundations. So me and Davina, we agreed when we were going out, we won't even kiss till our wedding day. Um, and, uh, and we did that. And the um, point to be made is what? Take action. Take action. Make decisions and take action. Okay? God will honor it. And third thing I want to say is, um, is this, is that I found it easier to obey this and to not, um, look or think about this whole thing before I was married. Why? Here's why. Before I was married, I knew that the whole deal was out of bounds, so I closed the whole thing down by the power of the Spirit. I then got married, and suddenly I've got this one realm of life where it's not just okay. God's saying, go on, boy. Yeah, God's, God's with me. He's saying, get drunk on love, as he does in the Song of Solomon 5. Yeah, he, that's what he's saying. Suddenly he's got the, he's got the thing out. He's in the stadium rooting me on. Okay, so we've got, yeah, that's, that's what God's doing, okay? That, that is, it's cool, right? So I've got God doing that in that realm, but being just as strict in the other realm, and it's kind of nuanced now. 
Yeah? Because it's no longer just close that thing down, boy. It's like, you know, it's, it's great there. Go on. And there it's like, so, ah, so you suddenly got two wells. And you, the discipline of keeping that in that world and saying, I will have just even my imagination, my thought, every lingering look and thought in this woman, even though she's the most outstanding, beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful, champion, lover, faithful friend in the world, the fact that there's a nuance in there makes it more difficult. Point number three, you always need your new victories. You don't nail the thing once and for all. This is reality. I'm being very upfront with you on this stuff today. Not because I find it comfortable, because I find it uncomfortable, but because I want to genuinely equip you and make sure that we're not just speaking theories and I'm not saying stuff that is not being worked out in reality. Is that okay? Okay. Hell. <laughs> Sorry about this, guys, but we've got to... Is hell real? All right, this is a great quote. My uncle Mike Beck's going to come be with us in September. I'm going to preach here. He's just referred to some really hard texts on judgment and wrath in Ezekiel, and he says this. Many of us as Christians read things like these verses and feel somewhat apologetic for God. A new Christian comes to church and starts devouring Scripture, and then they approach him and say, I've read this in Ezekiel. And you feel like you want to say... Well, he's not normally like that. I do apologise. Um, I, I can remember when our, our son was growing up. Once he just lay down in the supermarket and screamed for all his worth, as they do. So you drag them along into some room and you mumble in embarrassment. He's not normally like this. He's tired. We feel like this with God. I'm ever so sorry. He got really angry there. He's not normally like that. It's here we need to understand our Western atheistic culture that says there's no judgment, we're not accountable to God, and there's no wrath. But the sobering fact is the Bible shows there is unrelenting, sustained anger and righteous wrath from God being poured out upon humanity in all generations. The scale of it is enormous. Just look at some of these things it says in Ezekiel. Great waves of unrelenting wrath. I will not have pity. I will not hold back. I will not relent. There is no mercy. You'll come to a horrible end and be no more. This is not God mildly irritated. This is a vengeful, wrathful, angry God who is forever just. What should be more shocking to us is not that God gets angry, but that God did not kill you and me last night in our sleep because of the things we think and do and say. Our culture responds, we're not accountable to God and have done nothing to deserve wrath. However, the commandments say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and your strength. On that alone, we fail terribly. The creator God who made us for his glory and has the right to hold us accountable has the right to be wrathful when we disobey him. Maybe we think... Well, even if God is wrathful, then grace means he's calmed down a bit. <coughs> we suppose that obviously by the time the New Testament arrives, God's realised he set the bar too high. Perhaps the Ten Commandments should be called Ten Suggestions. <laughs> grace just becomes another word for tolerance. Perhaps we can get in our minds that somehow Jesus' death on the cross is God announcing the big let-off. Maybe Jesus' death provided us with some kind of divine role model to aspire to. Another idea is that this lovely, cuddly God now comes toward us, and as for the wrath of God, well, he's so sorry about that, it was just so Old Testament of him. <laughs> he's much more postmodern now, and he's not into that wrath stuff anymore. Surely these ideas are not the answer. Scripture makes it clear in Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. There's no realignment of God's nature going on to suit the prevailing culture of today. The cross teaches us about God's wrath, as well as his grace and his love, coexisting at the same time. The sky went black. Jesus sweat drops of blood. He cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does this tell us? It tells us that the wrath of God was aimed at his beloved son for our sin. It's not God saying it's okay. It's God saying it's really not okay. 
but I'm going to provide someone to be punished in your place. And it's Jesus saying, I will go and I will do that. That's what the cross is. Without wrath, we miss what grace is. Hell is real because wrath is real. And all who refuse refuge in Christ will face in hell the judgment of God. That sounds old-fashioned, I know. It sounds bizarre, I know. Why does it sound like this? I think it's because we become desensitized to the seriousness of sin. We become shaped by the world. But this scripture, this book, is the plumb line. God doesn't change. How do we conclude such a message? Jesus doesn't want us sin-focused or lust-focused so that our whole life is spent simply trying not to do certain things. Amen? Amen. That is not what he wants for us. God keeps us from that. But at the same time, he's wanting us to walk in the freedom that has been bought for us in Christ so that we don't become enslaved to sin. And sexual sin has particular enslaving qualities about it. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The Lord wants us to overcome in the area of sexual temptation and not be overcome. Ironically, the answer to slavery to sin is slavery to righteousness. It's a different kind of slavery because we're all slaves of one thing or the other. It's the same as saying we all worship something or the other. It's the same as saying our chief affections are all caught up with something or the other. We're all saying the same thing. We don't exist in a vacuum. Look at Romans 6. Don't you know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. That's what you are. If you're a believer, you are a slave of righteousness. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you understand your identity in Christ? You have a new master. You no longer have to jump when sin says jump. You can say no. If sin says, what do you mean no? Say, I mean no. On what grounds? On whose authority? Jesus Christ. Because of who we are in Christ. This is glorious. You're not subject to corrupting power anymore. It has no true authority. Now, you can give it authority, but its authority is only given by you. It has no true authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our behavior comes out of our understanding of who we are, and we need our minds renewed on this. We're not what we were. Christian brothers and sisters here today, you are not what you were. You've been made brand new. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor many practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. They won't. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And such were we were. In different ways, every one of us in this room, we can tick. Things, things on that list. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. <laughs> In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're here and you're not a believer, let me just say this to you. As a Christian, I do not think myself any better than you. I'm probably much worse than you. But I have been washed. 
And I've been sanctified and justified by the grace of God in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you can know the same. You can know the same. Freedom from the enslaving power of sin. We all have a past. We've all got deeds about which we're ashamed. Those of us who know the Lord and live before him do only so by his grace. We make our boast in Jesus. Amen? He is our righteousness. Oh, hallelujah. We've been empowered by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes the victory of Christ real in our lives. The battle is fierce. The enemies are real and potent. So what should we expect? Number one, expect to delight in God. There was a Puritan called Thomas Chalmers who wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What he's saying is this. When you get a new affection, it expels. has a power to expel other affections from your life. Do you love things that are dark and corrupt? Get Jesus in your heart. Love him. It will expel those other things. Delight in God. That's the biggest deal. The biggest delight in him. Take time to delight in him. Take time to feast at his table. Take time to feast at his table, number one. Number two, expect to be transformed to, uh, in, by one degree of glory to another, okay? So it's not all in one go. You will not be entirely like Jesus until you see him, okay? But there ought to be measurable progress, one degree of glory to another. Number three, we will stumble on the way. James 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. We'll get it wrong. We'll make mistakes when we do so. What do we do? Well, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. So when we stumble, we don't kill ourselves. We say, God knew I would, but I'm still taking it seriously. I still mourn my sin. God have mercy on me. He says, yes, and cleanses us. Fourthly, we should expect victory. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus disarmed every dark power and overcame them and demonstrated his victory through his resurrection and he rules and he reigns today. So there should be a growing interest in holy things and a growing disinterest in those things that are corrupting, corrupted, growing old and ready to disappear. Amen? Amen. Amen. You guys have been amazing. Like a five-course meal in 40 minutes. Where do we go from here? Who knows? God will be highlighting different things in your hearts. All I can say is with the body of Christ, he's here by his spirit. As we sing and worship, as we take bread and drink wine, let's find one another. Let's pray with one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's prophesy with one another. Let's go out of here stronger than how we came in. Amen? Amen. And if you don't know the Lord, I tell you, you can know him. You can know him because he died for you. Okay? You can know cleansing. You can, this isn't theory. This isn't religion. I'm not just, you know, kind of hyping the thing up. This is real. This is real. It's messy, bloody. <laughs> ah, it's a messy thing, but I tell you, it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. And all I can say is come to Jesus and let that power of the cross and that power of the gospel bring brand new life. Please do. Come and take the bread and the wine. Come and find me and say, Steph, I want to follow Jesus. I'll just pray with you. I'll pray with you that he'll fill you with his spirit. We'll get you baptized. You can start this new adventurous life of following Christ. Let's stand to our feet, shall we? Let's flow in the gifts. Follow God, please. Body of Christ. Let's be the body of Christ together.